Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Anne Pierce, soon-to-be-retired CEO of Springboard and absolute force of nature. Coming up on today's show... Anne's laptop gets excited when we start talking about retro computers. Using Amstrad computers. Phil shows a little too much excitement towards one topic. This is what I've been waiting for. And we learn that Anne may be from another planet. My team that are in the office, about half a dozen of them, they're looking at me as if I've just landed from the planet Zog. All that and a whole lot more as Anne talks us through her epic journey so far. A massive thanks to Anne for chatting to us at this tricky time. Don't forget, if you're enjoying the shows, do hit subscribe and give us a like and a share across your favourite social channels. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, your host Phil Street. Today I'm delighted to welcome to the show somebody that uh, I got to know through doing the Springboard Pantomime and I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. Uh, Delighted to welcome to the show Anne Pierce. Hello. Thanks for being on. How are you doing? I'm doing well thanks. The sun's shining and um, it's a beautiful day so yeah. Isn't it just? Great. Well Anne is of course the CEO of Springboard uh, and I think you've been there for quite a number of years but before we get into all of that, perhaps you can go all the way back to the beginning of your career. What were you doing and how did you end up doing what you do? Well, it's been a bit of a kind of funny journey, really, if I go back that far. So when I was at school, I was um, a really keen sports sportswoman. And um, I competed in athletics and took, you know, quite a high standard. And um, so whenever I was thinking about what do I want to do when I leave school, it was always wanting to be something associated with the sport that I, I loved, which was athletics. And so I decided I wanted to be um, a sports physiotherapist. So headed off, you know, applied to all these places to do physiotherapy, got um, an interview at in London at King's College Hospital and went down for this interview. And um, the first time... I'd ever come across somebody that I just immediately didn't get on with. And the only time it's really happened in my life. But this woman who interviewed me clearly thought that my reasons for wanting to be a physiotherapist were were not good. And I ought to be, you know, going and helping sick people in hospital get better. Right. Um, and so we had this immediate, like, you know, personality clash. And, and the consequence of that was I didn't get in. So I was kind of really thrown it's the first time I'd ever really failed at anything in my life as well so I went back and decided well what shall I do so I left school got a job at the local hospital as an auxiliary nurse in a geriatric ward and while I sort of pondered what I was gonna do okay um anyway that for quite quite a long story short led me to getting really interested in the um effect of nutrition on people's health um you know, I was quite inquisitive, I suppose, and asked loads of questions. So, so then I thought, oh, I know what, I'll m- maybe try and um, do something along those lines. And it it just came out of the blue, really. I got this letter from what was then Huddersfield Polytechnic, now Huddersfield University, but um, and it was saying like, seeing that you got these A levels in science, and you know, you haven't been placed at a college or university or anything. Um, do you want to come for an interview? And I, I was like, oh, mate, so I've, I've been headhunted for this for this place on this course. And 
I went along and I got on really well with the the guy that interviewed me. It turns out he was um, belonged to the local athletics club, so we had loads of them in common. And anyway, I came away thinking that'd be brilliant. I'll go and do this food and nutrition qualification at Huddersfield. And maybe then I could do something related to that with sport. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I subsequently took the place and went went to Huddersfield. Of course, they then realised that they hadn't headhunted me at all. It was just they were really short of people on the course that year. (laughs) (laughs) They'd trawled down the list of people who'd got, you know, mediocre A-levels or something to do with science and, um, yeah, had approached them to fill their gaps. Anyway, um, so I did this course, but I realised pretty early on that I wasn't a scientist but there was a strand in the in the course that was related to catering and hospitality. Um, and then I went and did a work placement at um, Cheshire School Meal Service. And then I did a subsequent placement at Exeter University, working in their sort of hospitality department there. And ended up eventually going to work in, in the industry. Started off in school meals and then went to work um, at Exeter University as a system manager in their conference centre. Um, and so that kind of started my, um, you know, love of hospitality and, um, you know, getting involved in the industry, really. And, yeah. you know, my athletics career carried on, but unfortunately came to quite a abrupt halt because while I was living in Exeter, I had a pretty horrible car crash. So all my hopes of one day being an international star um, went out the window. Crikey. And, you know that that was that really um yeah. but I, I mean I still obviously kept involved with sport over the years because I overcame that and you know blah 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 but but um I worked there for a while and then realized that although you know I loved what I did I was, wasn't really using my brain um and eventually um a, an opportunity came up at Bournemouth University what it now is it was then called Dorset Institute of Higher Education and um, I applied for that. Didn't get it, actually. Um, somebody else got it. But then a couple of days later, they ran me up and said they'd turned it down. Would I like it? Because I was the second choice. So I thought, oh, well. Well, honesty is the best policy. Yeah, I'll take, I'll take it. <laughs> and and uh, on off I went and, uh, and I did this research project. And it, that led to me doing a PhD. And, and the, the work that I did was looking at the impact of technology on the hospitality industry and how the introduction of of technological systems could improve the quality of food that was being delivered to the customer in mass catering situations so in in, and it was really I was using the early days of cook chill catering as a model for doing that so so we did that spent three years surveying all of these um, organizations using cook chill and you know sort of looking at a whole load of measures as to what made it successful and not successful and and kind of concluded at the end of three years that if people properly invested in the planning the training the um got the best quality technology in place and you know did all the consultation properly they would be successful and if they cut corners then they wouldn't be <laughs> and, I, and I got yeah. my PhD and then after that I kind of decided to go traveling um so I went off backpacking from Beijing to Hong Kong in the days when it was still very um you know heavily closed to the outside world and I mean in fact I got back from um 
China about four days before the Tiananmen Square massacre happened. Um, and wow. you know, it was like amazing because I'd been, you know, a month or so before flying a kite in, in um, the uh, square in Beijing where they had all the tanks invading it with the students, you know, a bit later. So that was kind of a bit of a whoa. Yeah. Didn't realise that at the time. And then my parents had um, moved to Mexico when I went to college for a couple of years. And then they had a further stint there um, just when I'd completed my PhD. So I then went travelling around Mexico as well. So And, and I came back and I thought, oh, I'd better get a job. Um, <laughs> it's um, good for the soul, though, isn't it? Yeah. At that, especially at that time of your life. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I would always um, advocate people, you know, exploring and, and, you know, just finding out about other communities, how they have, how they live, you know, what they do, what challenges they face, because, you know, you always learn from, from them. Um, and and yeah. you know, if I fast forward that to now, and, you know, I lead every year a group of um, people from industry and take them on an expedition to, a, a country that is you know in abject poverty and yeah. we, we trek and do um you know kind of bespoke um trekking challenge and then do a community project in that country and then everybody always comes back you know saying how it's enhanced their life because they have challenged themselves to do something that they wouldn't normally do been to a country yeah. that probably wouldn't have been on their bucket list and thirdly you know made a difference in the country that they're visiting and uh, you know those I, I just you know they are such brilliant things to do and they they do broaden your horizons and they do also create this kind of hunger for challenges and you know really striving to test yourself to see whether you can achieve these things in the face of adversity and all that so you know I think it's yeah hold you in good stead for for you you know your day-to-day life and work and your way you run your personal life and everything so yeah yeah um i was going to ask you if if the because I, I was aware that you you do the the treks uh mm-hmm. every year if the motivation for doing that came from your own experience of travel um yeah i yeah i suppose in one sense it did it, um it was a combination of things, really, because the first trek that we did was kind of in 2006. And we trekked 103 kilometres across the Sahara Desert, um, which was wow. one of the best treks that we've done in terms of the actual experience. Um, there was a lot of sand. Um, yeah, <laughs> not a lot of water. <laughs> yeah, not a lot, not a lot of water. But I only ended up going on that as a kind of... Um, last minute thing really because they were short of of people going on it and I thought well I'd really like to do that and and so that's how the first one came about with me going on it and then actually I really have missed doing this sort of thing so but because the first one we did didn't raise that much money for the charity we kind of left it for a few years and then another kind of member of my team came in and, and they had they'd done challenges in a previous um, charity and Holly Haig, who was um, the lady, she said, oh, I think I could really, you know, put together a challenge that will raise loads of money. So she's sort of put together a trek to do the Great Wall of China back in 2011. Right. I managed to get 23 people signed up to it. And 
Um, she did all the planning for it and all of that. And then about three months before they were due to go, she got pregnant. And so she couldn't go. <laughs> Uh, and so, all the planning uh, in the world, eh? <laughs> yeah, there's no one else who can go at such short notice other than me. So, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was it. And it was such a fantastic experience. And and that trek raised like over 150,000 pounds. It was amazing. Wow. And That's um, brilliant. Yeah. And then I got the book. And then so each year, the countries that we chose were well, basically they were in the the lower quartile of the you know poverty in the world. We had, yeah. had to rule out all those where there was trouble and strife going on. We had to um, rule out those where it was too expensive to put together a trip of that nature. And then then it was then a sort of picked on the basis of which, which country do I want to go to next? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so no, I think we've done about a dozen treks, but, but obviously. Well, I'm, I'm all in. For, for the next one okay um and i'll i'll let uh i'll let my wife find out about this when she listens to this podcast but um, um yeah no i I've, I've had my eye on the the tracks that you've been doing for for quite some time and i'm all for putting yourself through some form of challenge to for you know just an enriching uh, enriching experience yeah um but then doing some good at the same time. Yeah, and I think I think the other thing is that every trekking group bonds in a way that you know you create new friends that that will last forever. Um, yeah, yeah. But and going back to my career, um, when I came back yes. from Mexico, then I thought I better get a proper job, and um, <laughs> I applied for a job as a researcher at um, what was then the Hotel and Catering Training Board. And that was a an organisation that had been set up by government. Um, so each industry had a had its own training board, and their job was to help the the industry sector that they looked after improve performance and you know their contribution to GDP by improving performance through the mechanism of training. So my my role at the training board was in the research team. So I was looking at labour market information so I was doing lots of work on labor turnover and skill shortages and econometric forecasting and all that because the role of the board was to really understand what the industry's needs were so that they could ensure that there was a training framework in place to meet its needs right. so, so I was working there and then um, the government decided to privatize all of the statutory bodies in 19 we're talking 1989 now and um so what they did was that they they restructured and reduced the size of the organization and offered people voluntary redundancy and of course there were a lot of people who worked for the board who'd worked there for years and years and years because it was set up in 1966 and so they have very attractive redundancy packages and my Right. And my boss's boss both decided to take their redundancy money and set their own business up or whatever or go off into the great blue yonder. And I suddenly found myself, this this sort of lowly researcher, in the C- chief executive's office being offered the role of director of research and accreditation. So I'm like, you know, at the <laughs> tender age of about 26, I was the director. And I was always like, you know, take grab every opportunity that comes your way. And, and yeah. it's kind of, you know, whatever the consequences of it, you're going to learn something. So, and I, and I kind of look back at some of the things I said and the decisions that I made when I was in that role. And I was, I was so green behind the ears, you know, oh, oh, yeah. cringeworthy some of the things I asked. But anyway, the, 
But that's how you learn. You do. And the, and the chief exec was a guy called Duncan Rutter. And I mean, he's long passed away now, but um, he was my, my, I, I learned more from him than I think I've done from anybody really, be, just because right. of the steepness of the learning curve that I had at that time. And, you know, I'd leapfrogged so many layers in the hierarchy, but, but I stayed there for nine years. And, and as I, as I kind of progressed through a picked up more and more and more of portfolio so by the end of it I was responsible for research accreditation we developed the first tranche of MVQs when I was there we developed the first modern apprenticeship framework then I became responsible for communications and then I became responsible for careers and when I took on the careers element of it it put me onto the board of a thing called Springboard London which um, had been set up in 1990 and uh, they they it was a drop-in careers specialist careers center um but it was it'd been set up because the industry was struggling to attract talent and um Stephen Moss who was one of the founder uh, members of the group that set it up originally had wanted to put a practical response into the industry's need to attract talent and they'd identified yeah. the the kind of careers advice that school children were getting and the sort of um, information that people who were unemployed were getting about the industry was really poor and so they thought if they could turn that around and make it a really positive thing and you know get people engaged by doing inspiring activities that that might help to attract more young people and more unemployed people to think about the industry as a career and of course when Springboard was first set up in 1990 that there was no internet you know, we, it was, um, uh, using Amstrad computers, you know, and that was considered to be state of the art, you know, it's like, um, so they'd, I remember that. (laughs) Yes. Unfortunately. so. Um, and you know, they, they'd set up this really vibrant, um, center in London and they did all of this kind of innovative activity that got school children into the center and they'd created all of this experiential learning and um, got them engaged in have a go activities and all this kind of you know like making hedgehogs out of mangoes and and what have you um that sounds natural (laughs) and um you know then they've been doing work with the job centers to educate the job center advisors and then also you know run really kind of interactive recruitment fairs for people in the centre where they'd get chefs and waiters and um you know housekeeping staff and all of this to do challenges that these uh, that gave unemployed people the opportunity to try it for themselves so and and worked really well and and you know by the time I came in on on the board we were in the midst of the uh, coming out of the economic deep economic recession of the early 90s and of course an industry that was emerging from that was growing there were um our labor market research was saying that there were 390,000 new jobs predicted by the millennium that staff turnover was huge and the replacement cost of that was enormous we needed another 600 or so 100,000 people um, wow. And skills sh- shortages were acute in key occupational areas. So, and this was in the midst of what they called the demographic time bomb, because in the 60s, there was a gigantic drop in the number of births of, you know, as a result of 
women's liberation, people, women going out to work, the introduction of the contraceptive pill and all of that, you know, had a big impact on the number of births, which meant that, you know, yeah. 16, 17, 18, 20 years later, um, the number of young people entering the labour market was way, way lower. Um, and that was creating a squeeze because the industry, as you know, is very um, skewed towards young people working in it. Um, and, yeah. um, you know, it was at a time when the industry was thinking, how, how are we going to fill all of these vacancies? So I joined the board with all of this knowledge of, you know, what the the hospitality industry needed. And I saw this like little organisation that was only in London and but during the recession, of course, a lot of its activities had had to be curtailed because, you know, it, there had been a drop in its income. You know, yeah. the industry tightened its belts and we're thinking, well, we, we're in recession, we're retrenching people, we don't need to invest in the future. Um, and so it kind of bumbled along. And it I don't mean that in a rude way. It hadn't had the money to invest to keep up with the times. And, of course, in that period between, I would guess, 1993 and 1997 so you know there was the start of what became the technical revolution you know the the IT revolution um yeah so I came in on the board and I was thinking right there's all this stuff coming out of the labor market research and there's this little organization that actually if it was you know reinvented kicked into the 21st century if it was nationwide if it had proper industry support if we got some real vibrancy behind it it could make a difference to some of the challenges that the industry was facing um, right so I kind of you know I'm always up for a bit of a challenge so um I put a bid together for some funding that the department of trade and industry were offering up which was about how can we improve the competitiveness of UK PLC and they were inviting tenders from um industry partners um for grants and so I managed to secure a, a grant over a three-year period for £450,000 to take the concept of springboard in London nationwide and I managed to secure another grant for another 275000 to develop some new resources which um, included video resource packs, a, an interactive CD-ROM and a thing called a website and um, everyone thought, oh, CD-ROM, CD-ROM and, uh, <laughs> well, video resource packs. The first video resource pack we had had um, um, a, a VHS video of, you know, that we'd done of the industry and showcasing it and all that. And it came with a, a pack of overhead projector acetates. <laughs> My what? People could all of these things I remember from doing presentations at work uh, and things like that back in the... Um, the yeah. it was actually it was presentations for uni yeah um in the 90s overhead projectors and acetates yeah My I, know. I know we, in our archive we've still got them they're hilarious but <laughs> <laughs> but but you know the interactive cd-rom is probably you know if we the content of it is would still be really you know relevant today if it, if it was you know transferred onto a website it would be outstanding um so yeah so but but there was a condition with this money that got from government is that had to match it pound for pound with investment from the industry and other sources but thankfully they sort of steered it so that we could get the bulk of the government money in the first two years and give me a couple of years to try and get the money matched from industry right 
I was going to say, you have one of these moments whereby you've set the objective to to get the funding from government uh, and you get it. And then it's almost like, right, the, the work starts now. Well, I mean, yeah, really. But uh, of course, I was still on the board. I wasn't in, employed by Springboard at the moment, but I um, right. helped to draft the business plan. And, and then we kind of um, went about trying to recruit a managing director to come and take the, the plan forward. And just as an aside, I'd um, applied for the role of, because I've been at the what was then renamed as the Hospitality Training Foundation, which eventually became People First. But I'd applied for the role of CEO there because I'd been there nine years and I thought it's time for a new challenge. And so I went for it and I thought I was the best person to get this job because I'd been there for nine years and I'd experienced all those kind of different parts of it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I didn't get it. <laughs> So there's a recurring theme here. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. And and I thought, well, I don't want to work for another CEO there. So I decided I was going to leave. And and I I threw my kind of CV into um, the pot where it was Portfolio International at the time when David Cooper was running it with Chris Shepardson. That's one of my old stomping grounds. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were based, Bream's Buildings. well, I think it was just before the yeah. Dreams building, then uh, Greencoat Lane or somewhere around that area. Anyway, um, so I threw my CV in and um, Chris Shepherdson, I think it was, or it might have been David, I rang me up a few days later and said, I've got the perfect job for you. And I said, oh, yeah, what's that then? And they said, MD of Springboards. <laughs> Nearly fell off my chair, but um, <laughs> because the training foundation had been involved so much with springboard and it was it was um one of the founding partners of springboard originally um although i I hadn't had any involvement with it then um there was a kind of what wouldn't happen now but i found myself two weeks later sat in this office in springboard in number three denmark street looking at a wall with this business planner man thinking shit i've got got to make this work now Um, Yeah. So anyway, I mean, it was really three years where I've never worked as hard in all my life until these last four or five weeks, I think, because we were in a hurry. We've got a lot of things to do. I've got to take this organisation set up, you know, a a drop-in centre in Scotland, one in Wales, one in the north, one in the Midlands and blah, blah, blah. And then, then convince all of these people in the hospitality sector to invest so that I could match funds. <laughs> and another condition of the grant was that we had to make it self-financing. So, so yeah, yeah, that's what we set about doing. And, um, you know, 23 years later, I'm still here. I only took the contract to do it for the period of the grant as well. It was a three-year project and I was going to move on. And here wow. I am. That's a long three years. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um yes, yeah, so kind of we we got all that set up and you know, we there's been a bit of a roller coaster ride along the way. But you know, when I first walked in the door, the turnover of Springboard was eighty thousand. And just prior to COVID nineteen we were just over three million. So and we wow. employed nearly sixty staff and you know, the impact that the work that springboards built up over those years now is incredible and we were counting up um because it's our 30th anniversary year this year and we're counting up that reckon that over that period of time we've probably helped 100,000 people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds 
who've got multiple yeah. barriers to employment, who might otherwise have ended up living on the streets or in life crime and all of that. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. Really, really brilliant. You know, and, and our education programmes in schools, um, I mean, Future Chef, which is the biggest programme that we run for t- sort of 11 to 16 year olds, learning about food, how to cook, and hopefully encouraging many of them into the industry. Last year yeah. benefited nearly 17,000 young people in schools and it's like you know when we first kicked that program off in 1999 it was nine schools in Wembley (laughs) and it was a little cooking competition and now it's a year-round program supporting the food curriculum in schools with you know 650 chefs going voluntarily into those secondary schools to run skills programs and you know, this national culinary competition that's um, spawned the likes of Ruth Hansen and um, Stefan Davis and others who are enjoying great careers, you know, in the industry. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I suppose I can't fathom in my brain, how do you even, one, come up with an idea like that, but then implement it to to get it to the scale that it's now at? That That just sort of, fuzzes my mind a bit. <laughs> well fuzzes mine but uh, I, I mean you, you yeah. surround yourself with great people who've got creative ideas or you know or they are um able to implement the ideas the mad ideas that I have every now and again um and they turn yeah. it into reality I mean you know I'm astounded at just in with this you know coronavirus thing in a matter of three weeks my employability team transformed all of our employability programs almost overnight into a digital format and I'm like how how did you do that that's magic but uh, and got in touch with the beneficiaries and have already run you know sort of live training sessions through webinars and stuff to to great acclaim from the from the candidates and you kind of like you know if if you get the right people doing the right things and taking those ideas forward you know and it's also about I, I like this saying from um I had a money box when I was little and it was it had an oak tree on it and it it said big oaks from little acorns grow and it meant you know if you put your pennies away and save them you'll you'll make a, you, your money will build up and you'll get lots of money and that's always stuck through my mind is it you know if you take an idea and you start it off and and then build it and evolve it and people will then take it on to the next stage and have ideas and and you know it yep. evolves like that so these things are created over time I, I i don't think you can go like there's not many things that we've done that are kind of big bang like you know had an idea and then yeah. all of a sudden this tree's there <laughs> yeah um, with, with the exception um, of panto with, of course <laughs> well well that brings that surely probably brings <laughs> us nicely onto that to be honest how did that come about I mean, I think I have a loose idea, but for for those who are not, I suppose, privy to it, what is it? How did it come about? And and yeah. all of those. Well, it, uh, it, I mean, it's a pantomime. <laughs> yeah. That, peop- that all the people who act in it are from the hospitality industry, but it came about. I went for a meeting with Chris Penn when he was still general manager at the Ace Hotel in Shoreditch, mm. and we were just, you know, having a chat about how springboard was working with face hotel and you know looking at our partnership ideas and what we could do for for other things to help raise funds for the charity and and chris said oh he'd always had this idea that he'd like to get 
hospitality industry panto off the ground and you know he, he apparently um suggested it to another charity that he was involved in and they sort of turned it down saying no, I would never nobody would ever do it nobody would spare the time and everything and Chris said well I would um right anyway we just had the yeah and he had no time yeah yeah exactly and we just had the conversation in passing and uh, but it sowed a seed in my head and um I was thinking I could make this work I could do this and I went back to the office and um I went in was very open plan office that we were in at the time and I went in and I, uh, I said just been to this meeting with Chris Penny so inspirational this and anyways planted this idea we're going to do a panto we're going to do a springboard panto and we're going to do Cinderella and we're going to call it Springderella like this and my team that were in the office about half a dozen of them they're looking at me as if I just landed from the planet Zog and they're like no no you're mad this will never work and um anyway then there was our business uh, corporate fundraiser at the time you know well it was Jeff Rowe and he just looked yep. at me in a thoughtful way and just put his head down again and I was thinking he must think I'm, I'm nuts and and I reeled off all these ideas of how I thought we could get it to work anyway sat down and thought no more about it for an hour or so and then it, I got this email from Jeff bear in mind he just sat opposite me he sent me this email <laughs> I was just taking your idea and it look, I think this could is a goer. And he'd he'd written basically a, a plan of how he was gonna work with me to get the panto to work. Right. So we kind of decided we'd have a go. And so we went out and got a f- few interested parties together. So we went, obviously went back to Chris Penn and then sent a note out to my board of trustees saying, look, I'm thinking of doing this panto this is how we're going to do it's going to be a fundraiser this is how we're going to make it a fundraiser it's also going to be a way in which we can communicate to a wider audience about springboard and what we do in a fun way and it'd be memorable and it's inspirational and it fits with all our values blah 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 and yeah. um sent it off well like in a flash i got an email back from bob silk now bear in mind that my experience of bob silk until that point had been on our board, he's a serious board member. He's head yeah. of hospitality and leisure at Barclays Bank. He was always in a very really serious job. And and anyway, he came back and he goes, "I think this is a brilliant idea. How do I apply to be in it?" <laughs> and so, was like, oh, that conjures up wonderful images in my head of Bob, <laughs> almost <laughs> like, like your head down, getting on with his work. And this this email comes in, and it's almost like this is what I've been waiting for. <laughs> Well, he, he came back and he said, what, what part do I apply for? And I was like thinking, well, you know, Cinderella and he's a banker. So maybe he could be buttons, you know, buttons, money um, yep. or, or, you know, anyway, sent him a couple of ideas back. And he came back and he goes, oh, no, no, no. He says, I'm rather partial to dressing up in women's clothing. I was thinking more of an ugly sister <laughs> or even, you know, the fairy godmother or whatever. Well, I nearly yeah. fell off my chair in the office. I was like laughing out loud. I said, he can't be serious. But he was. And, you know, he played the part of the fairy godmother. And as you know, he's been the um, the uh, pantomime dame ever since. Yeah. <laughs> and he made a really good... And what a legend he is. ...with David um, Cowdery from Cavalry and Guards Club. Um, yeah. You know. I think David's uh, hung up his frock now, though, wasn't he? He has, yeah, which was uh, was a shame because he was a, he was brilliant as well. So. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. 
Yeah, he's uh, yeah, he was uh, definitely uh, the surprise package of the panto idea. <laughs> Um, but then you know we got we we sent it out there and I was amazed at how many people wanted to get involved and then um my stepdaughter was doing some work for Springboard at the time and she's an ex well she was at Cambridge um and so she was involved in the whole acting scene there so she wrote out to some of her partner uh, friends there and got them engaged so we got you know sort of bright young things as director choreographer um, script writers and all of this so that mm. a whole kind of new dimension on it from our kind of first one which was much more amateurish really and yeah it's kind of grown from from there and the first that comes first... back to the the concept of um from acorns to oak yeah. trees yeah uh, exactly the same principle yeah because the first year we just did two performances with different casts on each night as well actually and that was at King, oh, really? King's Place um, and then we moved to the West End <laughs> the following year yeah. the, the Arts Theatre and and JJ um, from London Cocktail Club was instrumental in that because I think he and his mum are involved with the theatre there that uh, one of their um, London Cocktail Club venues is is un- underneath um, so we did um, Aladdin I think it was there and right. then we moved to the current um, Leicester Square Theatre. So, yeah, it's like Springboard hits the West End. <laughs> yeah. And the family that has emerged, the Panto family, and the, you know, people have come from all over the hospitality sector, supply chain operators, you know, recruiters, all sorts of different players. And each year the cast sort of evolves. So there's not everybody is involved year after year. But they've created this family. It's amazing. Yeah, I have never experienced anything like it in my life. <laughs> um, I mean, from start to finish, because the, the obviously you you push yourself outside your comfort zone a little bit, or straight into the comfort zone in some cases. <laughs> but then, yeah, for whatever reason, that the, the bond that you get with everybody. I suppose it's, it's the same principle of doing a trek and then doing a community project afterwards. You're you're doing something so incredible with a, a group of people you can't help but feel a bond with them I guess yeah precisely and 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 think you know taking the the trek example as well I mean you are going into countries where they are still using really primitive tools and the rule of the game is you use what the locals use you know so you, you're building with um I mean, health and th- safety goes out the window, so don't tell that to the companies that sponsor it. <laughs> but, they're, you know, they're climbing rickety old ladders that have been made out of, you know, goodness knows what. And, and yeah. you're using... I, mean, I remember when we were doing the, the project to rebuild a school in Nepal and, and we were using these saws. We had three saws between us and we were, like, having to saw all these planks to do some cladding on a wall. And the, the saws were blunt, you know, and it was taking us ages to do it and, and everything. But at the end of it, they got a new school. They got a whole range of resources that we'd taken over there, sporting equipment and all of that. And, and you know, yeah. we walked away from it saying, I have made a difference positively in this community that will have a lasting legacy. But the team spirit that you you phone people in, they're, they're not builders. and all, I mean, we are kind of um we have a proper builder supervising it all to make sure we do the right thing you know but 
you know, the kind of teamwork they have to do so that, you know, you've got your natural leaders and you've got people who, you know, can turn their hand to this, that and the other and you all get your own job and you you learn how to do it. I remember people trying to plaster a, a building for the first time and, you know, it's not, an, it's a really skillful job and they start yeah. doing it and nothing sticks because you're using modern water or what have you that they, they use. And by the end of it, they created this wall that was as smooth as I don't know what, three, two days later it was dry and we all painted it and it looked amazing. And that Incredible. feeling of satisfaction and the, the impact is, yeah, awesome. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I was lucky or unlucky. It depends you, which way you look at it. But uh, to to lead off the um, the panto this year, and on opening night, I can't describe the nerves that that run through the system. And you, you know, there's a moment where you think, "Why did you say yes again?" <laughs> and and then that moment's just fleeting, and then that passes by, and then you you remember what you're doing it for, and. The, the fact that there's a much bigger picture in play uh, and just you know for the purposes of making a, a bit of a, a an ass of yourself on stage for a couple of hours it's a pretty small price to pay for the bigger picture and then ultimately you end up enjoying it anyway mm-hmm. so um yeah it's just yeah it's a really unique thing really unique yeah and i think you know those things live with you forever as well i mean I, I mean, I think this year's pan. Well, each year pantomime just gets better. It's yeah, a fabulous thing. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. And and the the talent that you see is just um, incredible. Really, hospitality has well, amazing talent. This is my first year of seeing Chris in action. Chris Penn, <laughs> um, my oh, word, my queen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it makes you um, really want to up your game. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think he should have been a dwarf, though. Oh, <laughs> that would have been brilliant. <laughs> the world's tallest dwarf. Yeah. I read somewhere, actually, just kind of following on, I guess, a little bit from uh, fundraising. When I was um, doing my my research, and I put inverted commas around that when I I say that, but I read an article somewhere that you you'd done with someone, and they asked you the question that if you could do any fundraising thing where there was kind of no barriers, no boundaries, no limits, what would it be? And your answer was Hospitality Olympics. <laughs> was it? <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't I don't know how long ago that was, that article, but um, is that something that, that still sits in your brain? Um, well, I've not thought about that one for, for a while. Um, but, yeah. I'm sewing it again right yeah, now. Yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that would be quite cool. Yeah, lots of lots of ideas come in and out of of my mind a, a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah, but I think the maddest one was Panto. Yeah, that's tough, tough to top. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, in your your career so far, have you got any funny stories that you could share with us? Um, funny stories. Oh, so many. Um, That's the first thing that everybody says, yeah. usually. And you can There's too many to, to mention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, if, if you'd asked me that before I told you the Panto story, I'd have told you the Bob Silk story, because that really did make me... Yeah, that was, that that was pretty funny. Make me laugh. Uh, my mind's gone blank, sauce. That's fine. <laughs> Perhaps we've covered it anyway. There's been... Uh, yeah. a, that, 
that I still have the vision of Bob Silk uh, in my head. So <laughs> I, I will take that. Take that with me. If I was to say, like, what one of my most, um, like, I suppose, memorable and dream come true moments um, was a few, well, a good few years ago now. I'm talking a lot of years ago, but while I was still at Springboard, we had um, a fundraiser in Manchester. Now, you may or may not know, but I'm an avid Manchester United fan and have been since I was five years old when um, I used to. really kind of like uh, Georgie Best because my, my sister had George Best posters all over her our shared bedroom wall and um, he was a pretty good looking guy um, so uh, I've been a Man United fan anyway but we were having this um, fundraiser in Manchester and one of our board members at the time lived opposite Alex Ferguson and was best mates with him you know, had, right. had to, you know, sort of go in the right circles. Anyway, he um, asked him if he'd um, be guest of honour at our dinner. And he did. He came and he brought um, uh, Darren Fletcher and Alan Smith, two players, with right. him. And yep. um, I sat next to Alex Ferguson for the whole of the dinner. Like A little uh, bit giddy. <laughs> at first I couldn't speak. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he was amazing. He was absolutely charming. He engaged everybody in the tone, made you feel totally at ease. And right. he was just lovely. And God, you know, like meeting one of your heroes. It it was just incredible. Anyway, a few years later, another one of our board members, who was then CEO of uh, Thistle and Gwoman Hotels, a guy called Heiko Figgy, he yeah. knew Alex Ferguson well because they used the team used one of the um hotels in the group and he asked Alex Ferguson if he would front a pound on a bill initiative and this was in the year of Springboard's 21st anniversary celebrations um, right. and so he did so we had Alex Ferguson's picture with um, you know strap lines about what impact Springboard has of disadvantaged young people and imploring people to add a pound to their bill and we were presented with a um, a big check on our anniversary event for um, £121,000 that they raised wow. that pound on the bill initiative. It was amazing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he's um, a big hero of mine. And then following on from that, another mate of mine, Stuart Proctor from the Stafford, who's very good friends with, with um, Ryan Giggs, managed to persuade Ryan Giggs to come to one of our fundraising events that we had at Excel linked to Hotel Olympia and he came down and I sat next to Ryan Giggs all night so yeah it's yes it's perks this job yeah (laughs) no doubt but then I suppose the the these guys are are also they're high profile so they they really help raise the the profile of the events that you've got them at as well I guess definitely I mean people were queuing up for autographs and all photos and selfies and all of that with them um, Ryan gigs and I was like well, I should have charged for it that would have been a good fundraiser <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. And that's another 30,000 right there yeah exactly yeah. yeah normally as we kind of reach the, towards the end of the the chat I, I often ask what does the the year ahead hold for you but it's it's kind of it's a, such a strange question at the moment mm-hmm. because I suppose everybody's in survival mode but I, I suppose the question has maybe evolved into saying assuming we can get past 
this the predicament that we're in with COVID nineteen at the moment. What's what's on the plan for for Springboard going forward? Well, yeah, you are. I mean, the last few weeks have been a, a, a really scary white knuckle ride, really. Uh, yeah. You know, we rely on a lot of our income from the industry. The industry has been so immediately and catastrophically affected that that's had an, yeah. an effect on Springboard's um, income. So, you know, we have drastically um, reforecast all of our budgets for um, 2021 and the next few years um, because we have taken the decision to assume that we're not going to enjoy the same, by anywhere near the same level of investment from industry. So we've then got to really focus on where our other funding comes from. So from trust and foundation grants, from the public funding, from fundraising activities and appeals and mm. you know so I've had a real kind of intense focus on what that might look like and that inevitably and unfortunately means we've got to change the way we do things and restructure and um you know cut our cloth accordingly and make some yeah. very difficult decisions but that in the context of we've still got 1212 um beneficiaries on our books that are requiring our ongoing mentoring guidance counseling support and our part way through our employability training programs um so we've had to transform that so that we can deliver that digitally and then that means you know going forward that it transforms the way that you're capable of delivering so you can probably build for the future and and do it in a different way to before you you know it's always about reinvention at the end of the day and coping with the challenges life sends you so right how do we how do we you know be nimble and agile and change our offer to cope with the circumstances that we're now faced with and I think also we're going to be in a situation where immediately after you know lockdown is lifted whenever that might be we're going to be faced with huge increase in the number of people who are out of work that is an inevitable consequence um, who will need springboard support so you know the need for the work that we do is going to grow and then at the same time the work we do on and behalf of um, the industry in terms of promoting it's a great place to work trying to attract the right talent to think about the industry as a career option and all of that you know as the industry rebuilds uh, our services on that side will will i think be a required even more because it will be a different message that the industry is trying to get across um, mm. so we're kind of planning for if you like the the phoenix springboard that comes out the other side to be ready capable able mobile to to be able yeah. to respond to those those needs and we put a lot of work into you know sort of really trying to predict what that's likely to be but but also trying to position the skill sets that we've got to be able to respond quickly and and well to support the industry but also to support young people and our beneficiaries and you know in the same way that we've changed all our employability programs a lot of our educational resources into schools were on a digital platform anyway but we've now had to try and work out how can we transform them from that um, digital platform to one where students can access them for home learning um, yeah. and and that's not quite an e- as easy a transition but it's one we're working through at the moment with the support of a teacher's network so 
Yeah. And then uh, I guess you just kind of hope and pray that there's a, a, a vaccination found very quickly that will help to control the the disease because it's all accounts it's not going to go away so until that happens you're going to expect some changes to the way people are interacting socially that's going to be forced upon us I'm sure and it'll you know our industry is going to be impacted for longer so it's the first to be impacted it's going to be the last to come out of it I think in 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 lots of ways and you know obviously with the exception of those who are doing brilliant jobs at the moment feeding um you know the critical workers whether Mm. they're in the care sector whether in food distribution whether they're in um uh, the NHS or what have you so yeah yeah I think the the one of the the good things that's come out of this is that I, I I well I hope that people who are not in the industry see a lot of the good work that's going on around that you know from an industry that's really kind of on its knees mm. uh, a little bit as well the the industry hasn't just sort of sat sat there and taken it it's it's evolving uh, lots of individual companies are figuring out new ways to to exist you know whether that be through delivery or or whatever but um mm. it, i've just been there was that period initially where I think everybody just kind of fell to their knees and like, my God, what do I do um, at this point? And then once you get past that initial trauma, it's uh, it's a case of coming up for air and, and seeing, okay, so now what can I do to to help? And it's um, it's been really encouraging to see. Yeah, and I think, you know, some of the things that people have been doing it have been extraordinary you know yeah and, and just the way that hotels have responded by opening them up again for critical workers to stay in because they can't go home or whatever it is um the way that you know um different manufacturing companies are donating free this that and the other to critical workers the way that you know people are delivering to vulnerable people in their homes pre-prepared mm. meals and stuff like that and I was talking to um Andy Aston from Baxter Story the other day who'd been making you know hundreds of meals from his own home and and packaging them up and sending them to his local hospital I mean goodness that's amazing um, yeah and there's so many more examples of of, of that and you know I, I I do think it it's at times of crisis where you you really you know people come into their own yeah. Well, you can do it two ways, can't you? You can you say, right, okay, how do I, how can I contribute? What can I do? How do I change this around to cope with this? Or, or you shoot yourself away and be miserable. Well, I know what, what I'd rather do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, if people wanted to get a hold of you to to chew the fat and and learn more about springboards, how how could they do that? Well, they could ring me up. Um, they could go on our website. They could email me. They could um, get me on LinkedIn. They could get me on WhatsApp. Yep. Fairly approachable then. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, no, it's been a a real pleasure to to have a chat with you. And um, I really hope sincerely that that there will be light at the end of the tunnel for you guys very, very soon. And I'm sure the industry will will get behind you in any way that they can. I think that the respect for the work that you do is phenomenal, certainly from what I've seen. And I certainly pass that respect on from from myself. Uh, as well having seen it firsthand and I'm gutted because I was all set to go on the um, program to become an ambassador oh well watch this space because we're looking at doing a digital version of that okay Um, if you know as as soon as um, we know that 
I'll let you know. But if not, then we'll get you on the first one that we run when we're back on track. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Anne. It's been a pleasure to chat. Well, thank you too. Take care. And you. Well, what a fabulous journey Anne has had. Achieving so much and revealing yet another route you can take in this amazing industry. Shortly after recording, Anne announced her retirement from her role at Springboard. We'd just like to join the industry in thanking her for her amazing service and the energy she brought to the role. All the very best, Anne, and we'll see you next time.